We are pleased to be speaking now with Amit Sharma, founder at Finclusive Capital, a hybrid fin reg tech company that provides a low cost, high compliance, fully integrated and blockchain enabled digital banking, routing and payments platform. Finclusive is a full stack financial crimes compliance FCC platform seeking to modernize FCC compliance in a new era of financial services. We're excited to reach into Amit's brain on a host of topics, including AI, blockchain, fintech, digital currency, and more. Amit, perhaps most importantly, is a graduate of Mr. Jefferson's University down in Charlottesville, Virginia, fellow Wahoo. Amit, thank you so much for joining us on 966. Hey, Wahoo Wah, thanks for having me. Wahoo Wah. I'm, I'm so excited to have you on. Amit is a, is a good friend of mine, and he's extremely patient uh, with me because I, I say stupid things like distributed ledger and blockchain and and DeFi, and he sort of humors me. Um, but I've learned so much just getting to know him and trying to understand his business. And the reason I'm excited to have him on the show, because if we're talking about decentralized finance, and everybody's talking about decentralized finance, you know, you have it's like a car, it's like a really fine automobile. You have people who buy them, you have people who sell them, and then you have people who design them and really can understand them and get in under the hood and fix them. And that is Amit Sharma. And that's why I'm excited to have you. We're excited to have you with us, Amit. Um, so welcome. Well, thanks for having me. That's very generous of you. So I'll do my best to try and explain some things, at least from my vantage point. And look, I've just had uh, the good fortune of being, you know, within the financial services community for the past 20 years as a regulator, as a technology person um, on the commercial and investment banking side. So just seeing a lot of the mechanics and, and the evolution of financial services, which on the one hand is pretty exciting when we see decentralized financial services, we can get into those uh, those concepts and what they mean and so, so-called web-enabled applications and you know uh, technologies like distributed ledger that are enabling some efficiencies in fin services and, and compliance and, and the like, and we can jump in them. But they all intersect now, and, I, and that's what makes it exciting. Yeah, and and I, I'm quite certain I'm asking too much of you, but you know, so much of your defining experience early on was when you worked with the Department of Treasury after after 9/11, and the financial uh, community, and so many so many things happened at that point. Can you give us sort of an overview of sort of the evolution of decentralized finance, and and you know, sort of give us a, just, just a context, and then we can move on to, you know, what's going on today and what Finclusive is doing. Sure. No, I'm happy to do it. So I, I joined the U.S. Treasury Department soon after the tragic events of, of September 2001, when, you know, uh, terrorist organizations had attacked, had had some direct attacks on American soil. And the United States government at that time, as it related to certain perpetrators of those attacks, um, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and affiliate organizations, had both a diplomatic response strategy and a defense strategy. And there's a massive middle, right? So obviously the diplomatic response, working with international governments and saying, how do we combat organizations like terrorist groups and affiliates um, that are illicit actors in the system and and how do we go after them proactively and um, and then the defense strategy obviously a much more punitive law enforcement defense related set of assets that go proactively to, to, to identify and capture bad guys. Well, there's a massive middle and that middle is the commercial and financial sector. And why is that important? It's important because 
the very services that you and I take for granted, that our businesses, our community organizations, our households take for granted, the ability to cash a check, to send money, to make a, a transfer from your bank and the like, those are the very same systems that bad guys use, right? To recruit and retain other bad guys, to buy and sell illicit materials. These are the same commercial and financial systems that illicit actors, whether it's organized crime and drug traffickers or terrorist financiers and, and the like. So we realized that financial services companies could be the pointed end of the spear and be the choke point to identify illicit activity and, and root it out and, and ensure that the financial system had integrity. And what I mean by that is that it was both the ability for engaging in positive economic behavior for everyone that needs it, but also was not exploited by illicit actors, right? That, you know, um, that uh, organized crime groups could not um, defraud people, that they couldn't use identities uh, that were fraudulent and accounts that were fraudulent and move money, uh, whether they be just trying to wash or launder ill-gotten Ill gains or to move uh, seemingly legitimate funds for illicit purposes, which is the case in terrorist financing. So in at the US Treasury Department, shortly after September uh, 2001, there was a huge strategy put together and I had the, the opportunity to be a part of it to really look at what were our economic um, uh, and financial uh, tools to combat illicit activity, economic sanctions, regulatory actions, bank secrecy issues, know your customer provisions. And so the toolkit that we went to first was anti-money laundering. And all questions around anti-money laundering really come down to one central issue, which is, do you know who your customer is? Know your customer or so-called KYC, or when we talk about it in legal entities, know your business. Do you know the business you're transacting with? Do you know your counterparties that you're transacting with? If you know your customer, then you can ensure that they are a legitimate actor, that the accounts or wallets or, or other mechanisms by way they issue or transfer value are legitimate. That was the entirety of the anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing strategy. And then we put together many of these rules uh, for financial services companies, but we and and effectively deputize them. And we can, in hindsight, I think we may have overreached deputizing financial services companies and telling them to be the law enforcement officers are very, it's very hard. They're not equipped to do a lot of those things. And and now you're asking the smallest credit union in, in the most uh, remote part of uh, the US to a, a small financial technology company, to a global crypto exchange, to a international bank or a broker dealer. You're asking them to understand the nature of every one of those clients, their background, monitor them on a real-time basis so that they are not exploiting the system and putting people at risk, individuals, households, businesses, and the like. Now, what that means ultimately is that the anti-money laundering toolkit, running Know Your Customer, running ongoing monitoring on that customer, um, monitoring their transactions across a number of payment rails, whether it's an ACH or an international wire, or now peer-to-peer -peer transfers, real-time payments, open banking, all of these innovations in financial services are very exciting, but they open up additional channels for illicit actors to then exploit those systems. Now fast forward to a increasingly web-enabled world. And so we'll, we'll try and stay away from as much jargon as possible, but what do blockchains and distributed ledger technologies really represent? They represent the ability to build infrastructure on top of an open web, right? Native to, to the internet, where we can tokenize value 
on the open internet and access that value, trade or transact in that value, make payments, and enable credit and lending and securities, all these different financial services and products that exist in the analog world are increasingly enabled in the web native world, created, transacted, engaged entirely digitally. From a financial inclusion perspective, that is incredibly exciting because now I can put that small business owner that has a smartphone or, or a web-based application, I can enable them and connect them to a US-based dollar, dollar-backed account. That's pretty exciting. I can extend a small dollar loan from anywhere in the world to that individual to start their business. I can uh, send value to my aunt who's got a health event in rural Pakistan, but I can do so through a native web-based application and get that value to their, their wallet on their phone near instantaneously. I can process and settle transactions 365 days a year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Why? Because in a native web-based world, I don't have to wait for bank hours, right? I don't have to just operate between the, the nine and five uh, on a US bank holiday to process and settle a clear transaction in dollars. I can now do so using tokenized value in a native web-based environment and have that happen any time of day. So having a financial system internationally that is always on, always accessible in a native web-based environment, that's exciting. When I think about putting my regulatory compliance hat on and when I think about going after bad guys that exploit the system, that's very scary, right? So now I have to take those same applications to know your customer and monitor transactions and monitor client behavior and see is there something outside of the norm for them. And I got to apply those all into now native web systems. And I also have to have interoperability. I have to be able to say, oh, that fiat-based transaction, that dollar transaction that happens over the SWIFT rails, and then they go to digital assets, some kind of tokenized or crypto or digital asset token. I have to be able to translate those monitoring rules, those monitoring capabilities across those domains. And that becomes pretty, uh, pretty uh, uh, scary sometimes. But that's the world we're living in. That's the excitement we have. And so the final thing I will say is that my learnings from that background to your question, Richard, is that too often as the rules of the road have increased, as regulatory compliance burdens, requirements have increased for banks, payments companies, money service businesses, lending institutions, and now, now web-based applications, is that many organizations have said, you know, the burden is way too high, I'm just not gonna do it, and I'm not gonna engage certain types of businesses because they're too high compliance risk. And what has happened is that that has disproportionately fallen on low-moderate income, the global poor, money service businesses, international remittances, immigrants, uh, small businesses. These are increasingly seen as higher perceived compliance risk or low profit or both. And many institutions just say, it's not worth the compliance burden to, to, to end the headache. Yet, these are categorically the institutions that need access to secure, compliant, basic financial services. And you couple that with web nativity, right? The ability to do this completely digitally in, in the most remote frontier markets that are now increasingly digitally engaged. That's exciting from an inclusion perspective, but we got to have all these different um, uh, rule kits for, for knowing your customer, et cetera, in those same environments. So we got to find that balance. And that's really what's informed Finclusive and our regulatory technology stack is really being able to enable that in a cheap, cost-effective, global standard way, but do so that has 
application in both analog traditional financial services, bank-based, and web-native or alternative or financial technology-based services. So, in fascinating. Thank you, Ahmed. Um, in layman terms, so basically you have sort of a, you know, a, a immovable object meets immutable force. You've got sort of a, a, a enforcement-centric uh, banking system that is bumping up against, you know, a real impetus to expand inclusion in essence, and to really to, to, to move, remove frictions from these web-based. So, so you've got this dynamic. Um, and, and this is an opportunity, actually, I'd love for you to talk about the inclusive, because whenever I, we speak, you're sort of dealing with these questions. The inclusive is trying to resolve this, this sort of fundamental conflict and, and trying to make it work. Um, can you talk a little bit about the inclusive? And the, the reason I want you to do this is because I think in a discussion of the inclusive, what you do is essentially a discussion of all the things you sort of have to 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 integrate and deconflict and make work in in these two forces. Yeah, absolutely. So as as was pointed out in the beginning, Finclusive at its core is a regulatory technology stack. What does that mean? That means that every time an individual or an entity goes in to get access to basic financial services, wants a loan, wants a mortgage, want to extend credit, want to make a payroll payment, want to pay, pay, pay money through a supply chain, whatever it might be, right? If you're issuing value, storing value, sending value in some way, shape or form, you're a financial services company. And if you're a financial services company, um, financial services is highly regulated for all the reasons we just discussed. You wanna make sure bad guys don't exploit it and you're protected. So thus a whole slew of anti-money laundering and financial crimes compliance, FCC tools and requirements are levied on financial services companies, right? And they are all beholden to their home regulator. So U.S. banks and non-bank uh, financial institutions have to answer to U.S. regulators in the same way in the U.K., in the EU, and, and the like. And not all of those rules are exactly the same, right? Not every single one of those requirements is the same. But there's a global standard that's set by what's called the Financial Action Task Force. The Financial Action Task Force has been around since the, the since the early 80s, um, which is really setting the standards for global applications of anti-money laundering and financial crimes compliance, right? Now, so there's a bit of a global standard. Now, secondly, compliance is hard, inefficient, not, uh, it is increasingly now being technologically enabled. But when you think about when you walk into a bank, and you onboard with the bank, that bank is collecting all sorts of personal identifying information, right? Your name, your address, your email, your telephone, your device ID, your social security number, some kind of uh, identity document, a passport or driver's license, what have you. And it has to authenticate all of those things. It has to make sure that none of those documents are fraudulent, right? They, you're not taking a legitimate email that belongs to someone else and legitimate telephone number that belongs to someone else and a legitimate name and all that, compiling that. And now you have a fraudulent persona, but all the component pieces are real. That's hard to get around. And ultimately what, what financial institutions have done over time is that they've had a number of different providers to do the things within the context of your anti-money laundering financial crimes compliance tooling. You have one provider to do know your customer, another provider to do an identity verification, another provider to do a documentary validation of your passport, another provider to do a selfie or liveness check or a biometric check, eye scan, a thumbprint, an email, a device ID, another provider to, to look at global sanctions and watch lists and make sure you're not on the terrorist list or the data. You can see where 
where I'm going with this. All these different capabilities that are often piecemeal. And the net, net, net result is the average bank financial institution is literally piecemealing 10 to 12 different providers that do not have data interoperability, lots of humans in the loop, very inefficient in its design. And the net result is many are, are providing those services upwards of 25 to 30% of their operating budget is going to just risk and compliance. So it's very expensive, right? So the first thing we did was we realized that all these disparate providers, why don't we bring the best in class services in one workflow? right? And we'll make it totally API enabled. There's a web-based user interface. So a bank that has no technology and APIs can plug into a web-based dashboard, a user interface just on the web, or you can create um, connectivity by, by APIs. But you have we have 50, 60 different providers in one workflow. We take care of all those integrations, all the wholesale re resale agreements. Secondly, we have global coverage deliberately because financial services is increasingly global. So even U.S. institutions that are a small, you know, a credit union operating for businesses in their local community have suppliers or vendors or others outside. They have to have that connectivity. So we have global coverage, federated model. What does that mean? That allows us to go, oh, I can pull from different data sets, different providers and cross correlate them to get the best result from a due diligence and intelligence perspective. And the net result is we create what we call compliance as a service, which is a marketplace of global anti-money laundering and financial crimes compliance tools that's built for traditional banks, deposit institutions, trust companies, payments companies, and non-traditional fintech companies, banking as a service, blockchain enabled, or so-called web three companies, those that are building natively on the web, things like that. And so we, we create all of that orchestration and make it easy to consume all these tools in one workflow. And that's the first piece. So we have compliance as a service that's built to that global standard. And then the second piece is being able to enable alternative and traditional institutions to get those tool, the, that toolkit. The final piece I will say, because we are now in, in, in a more web native world, is that one of the key things that we do is we issue digitally verifiable identity credentials. So it's a very, very, very... Um, jargony phrase that basically means the following. Richard Wilson, when I onboard you into my institution and I collect all this personal information and I run those checks, I can run all those checks and those that sensitive information. I can issue a digital token that represents all of this underlying information without disclosing that information publicly. And now that token represents that all of that information, your name, your address, your email, your SSN, the fact that you're on a, not on a sanctions list, all of that's verifiable and attestable instantaneously just by your sharing of that credential. So you get an enhanced privacy protection that you can then share this credential and say, hey, I've been KYC certified. And now imagine in this in this environment where you may bank with a credit union in, in, in a rural part of the United States, but access a payments platform that's a, you know, an app that you get on the app store and you're able to then send payments to make payroll to your contractor in Eastern Europe. You can do all of these things because your KYC credential without disclosing your personal identifying information is validatable by every one of those intermediaries. That's exciting. And imagine doing that at scale. Because now you can get everyone that's legitimate in a system and be sharing credentials without turning over personal identifying information. That's critical because now, exacerbated by COVID, et cetera, we are digitizing our engagements in so many domains, financial services included. 
identity now needs to catch up too. So our ability to create identity credentials backed by your KYC data allows equitable and secure financial access with that consumer protection. And that's the core of our platform. So how does, so this, you know, this, this speaks to the uh, unbanked or the lesser banked and, and many other things, but yeah. how would a, you know, a, a woman who's making handicrafts in Ethiopia working out of her home um, become, get a token? you know, be yep. verified. Absolutely. So there's a couple of ways to do it. So we are a business to business platform. We enable organizations, be they a corporate enterprise, a nonprofit, a crowdfunding platform, a marketplace, or banks, financial institutions, payments companies. We enable these organizations to issue these credentials and run all these background checks. So the interface for this individual in Ethiopia that is creating handicrafts, the question then is, is she using an application that she downloads uh you know uh, you know from the google store onto her android phone or maybe she's walking into an institution uh locally or maybe she's doing it entirely you know digitally with her with her mobile phone what she can now do is entirely in a digital way she can provide that information and be verified and validated and be given a credential that substantiates the authenticity of her identity but here's where we go a little further. Because your identity is able to be validatable in a number of ways. It's not just, do you have a passport that was issued by a government entity? But do you have this social media platform uh, uh, and identity? Do you have these affiliations? Do you have this um, uh, this uh, history with these uh, or community organizations? These are a number of different ways that you can attest to the authenticity of an individual or an, or an entity. And the more of those data points we can bring in, the more anti-fraud controls you bring in, the more ways that I can tie specific attributes that can be attested to you. And the more attributes I have, the more I can authenticate your true self. So that's where we have these uh, pieces, right? So we, we are able to therefore provide that digital credential to that individual in Ethiopia, and she can now, using a very plain vanilla application on her phone, have in her wallet of her phone, that credential, and she can then share it to a bank, to a payments platform, to whomever. And she can be authenticated near instantaneously without disclosing all of that personal identifying information. So uh, fascinating. So I want to pull back from that granular level and, and ask you two things. One, and just for our listeners, just so you know, this is all going to end up in the Gulf, GCC and Saudi Arabia. So, so that's where we're headed. Uh, the beauty of this is we can understand the environment and what what is you know what is at hand here in your because it's different and I, we're going to have the U.S. and the Gulf. What is the state of play of decentralized finance in the U.S.? There's a it's a great question, and what we're seeing is both unnerving and exciting at the same time, right? So the way I would say this is is the following: financial services are well on their way to be digitized and almost be increasingly web native and using more decentralized financial services applications like distributed ledger technology, like blockchains and the like. There has been obviously one of the prominent applications of blockchain technology is in facilitating what we all have understood as the crypto economy, right? Crypto assets and crypto assets, let me be clear, are very diverse from, you know, payment stable coins that derive their value from an underlying asset 
like the US dollar or the euro or what have you, or commodities like gold, et cetera. These are other forms of tokenized value. So payment stable coins are different from algorithmic, uh, you know, derived digital assets than, you know, broader crypto assets to NFTs. They're all different applications that are built on the underlying technology that is blockchain or distributed ledger. So they're all different in that regard. Now that said, as folks know, it's very easy right now to look at the broader crypto economy with a certain degree of skepticism. And that would be absolutely correct when you have issues like Terra Luna, you know, early last year and then FTX collapsed late last year. These are fraud. That's just fraud. These are organizations that committed fraud, either commingled customer funds that then they took with proprietary assets and like the underlying technology is not what's at question. It's not what failed. It's purely fraud, greed, you know, classic examples of, of financial fraud and, and exploitation of people, right? So what has happened in the U.S., understandably, is many of the policymakers, many of the legislators have taken a very skeptical look at applications of the technology in the crypto universe, in the crypto sector. And many banks, therefore, are waiting for regulators to come up with some clarity as to how to bank enable this sector to thrive. And the United States, unfortunately, has been on the lagging end of that. The Middle East, interestingly and excitingly, has been on the forefront. The, uh, the kingdom, uh, um, Bahrain, uh, the UAE, and others in the region are very forward-leaning applications of blockchain technology, very forward-leaning on alternative um, uh, forms of financial services, web native financial services, what's what so-called web three applications. And the kingdom, uh, UAE and others are, th are throwing a lot of um, uh, support regulatorily, investment wise into these applications because they know that's the future and they are correct. And what has happened is in the United States, um, again, somewhat understandably given the fraud that we have seen in, in the course of, of the last several years is that we have um, been very slow as a sector uh, to proactively provide regulatory compliance and, and governance standards that the sector can understand. And many organizations have therefore left the United States um, to pursue those interests, pursue that growth, pursue that investment outside of the United States. Now, on the one hand, for the kingdom, for the UAE, for others, very exciting because there's a lot of work that we can do. And we're working with organizations that are enabling either public sector uh, uh, driven um, initiatives or private sector driven initiatives um, with blockchain tools, with Web3 tools, et cetera. And we are excited about providing those in the compliance domain as well. What we do um, uh, do certainly realize is that the U.S. has to catch up. I mean, at the end of the day, the U.S. dollar remains one of the strongest uh, fiat currencies on the planet, right? Uh, international corporate debt instruments are priced against the U.S. dollar or treasury equivalent. Um, the vast majority of international swaps are done in dollars. The vast majority of international commodities are traded and priced in dollars. The U.S. dollar as a core reserve currency has been the case for years and years and years. That is eroding. There is more international transactions today that are happening outside of dollar-based transactions. So if you think about it from a dollar dominance perspective, if you think about the open architecture of U.S. capital markets, the, the open investment climate, the ability to, to stimulate entrepreneurism and the like, 
The United States needs to catch up now that the world is screaming toward enabling, investing in, and creating regulatory environments for open innovation. And right now, the United States is lagging because as a result, many organizations building in the digital asset domain are confused as to whether or not they're going to have banking support here, and more importantly, regulatory support, so that we do need to catch up here. Um, is this is this in the U.S., is this sort of uh, running into a logjam in Congress, primarily, or... Is that is and, and I, w I wouldn't be surprised. I think you know many things are running into a logjam in terms of, of getting things done in Congress these days. But regulatory reform seems to is that where the sticking point primarily? It's a it's a major place where there's a sticking yeah. point for sure. Right, mm -hmm. there are functional regulations today that absolutely cover this sector, no question. It's not like crypto is quote unregulated. Far from it. Digital assets are regulated today. However, the nuances around technologies underpinning question who is covered and what are the obligations for technology providers and financial services companies operating either in the digital asset domain or providing financial services to those operating in the digital asset domain. So that requires Congress to act. There is a Stablecoin Act that finally passed um, the, the House and has moved on to the Senate this fall. The uh, the challenges in our U.S. Congress have stymied the the look uh, and push of the Stablecoin Act on the Senate side, just given all of the challenges that Congress has faced from a governance perspective. There's also a um, uh, you know a, a digital asset um, um, uh, uh, legislation around uh, market integrity. These are exciting developments. We need to get these through Congress because what that does is that lays the policy framework for implementing rules and regulations that the functional regulators in the U.S. now can adhere to. And the challenge in the United States is we have a federated financial regulatory environment. Many jurisdictions have a single financial services regulator, right? Uh, the UAE, uh, well, within the context of Dubai and Abu Dhabi and these other it's, it's but there are there are single authorities that look at the entirety of the financial services domain. In the United States, we have, you know, multiple banking regulators, right? National banks, uh, FDIC insured banks, community banks, regional banks. We have 50 states <laughs> that that have their own regulatory regimes for banks and non-bank financial services companies. If you're a money service business or a payments company, you have to, add, and if you have um, uh, clients across the country, you have to have 50 different state regulators and FinCEN, uh, which is the U.S. Treasury Financial Intelligence Unit, which is the keeper of the BSA. You you have 51 plus regulators. If you're an investment bank, you have multiple regulators. If, you have a, if you're a commercial bank, you have multiple regulators. If you're a securities company, or commodities uh, company, right? Then you've got the SEC, the CFTC. So you've got a number of, of federated regulators operating in different domains, and it is not yet clear which one of those regulators holds sway over activities or practices undertaken in the sector. So that needs to be clear, uh, uh, clarified. But the sector also has to come and be proactive about how innovations in their space have built-in governance mechanisms. That's where we come in as well. We, we see the excitement because we can embed compliance tools into the very fabric of these services. And so we get right back down to activities and practices, right? Are you issuing value, sending value, custodying value, providing liquidity? These are financial services activities. And it shouldn't much matter if you're a regulated bank financial institution or a social media platform or a retail company or a crowdfunding platform. 
Many of these organizations are conducting financial services activities. Google is a financial services company. Apple is a financial services company. Starbucks is a financial services company. Are they regulated like banks? No. Are they engaged in financial services? Absolutely. So let, take us back to Saudi Arabia. And, and um, you're familiar with Vision 2030. And, and yeah. a, a, a major priority of Vision 2030 is, is digitization of the, of the economy and also the mindset. And you saw an yeah. explosion during the pandemic. A couple of things were going on. The central bank had set up a, a, a what they call the sandbox, a fintech sandbox. So you yeah. had uh, applications that were coming in and they tried. It seems to me, I'm not an expert. You know, a lot of these point of sales. You know, even some buy now, pay later, sort of fintech 101 stuff. Yeah. Um, can you tell us where it is now? Are, are they? And and I'd also like at some point we can maybe segue into things like digital currency. That's a big. Mm -hmm. That's a big separate thing. But um, in Saudi Arabia, is it a maturing market as you see the fintech spectrum? Very much so. I mean, what, what Saudi Arabia and a couple of others in the region have recognized is that the digitization of financial services, quite frankly, the digitization of many other services, healthcare, education, is already happening. And they are being very forward-leaning, rightly, to say, let's see some of that innovation here to create the ability for individuals and households and small businesses and international corporates to interact purely and natively in a web-based environment. So companies like Drop and others are helping the government in Saudi, uh, whether it's at the ministry level, individual project level, sector engagement, technical assistance, um, or in regulatory sandboxes to innovate and test applications utilizing some of these technologies, these Web3 applications, distributed ledger technology, um, to enable the ongoing, what I would say, inevitability of digitization. The ability for the kingdom and the UAE and others to put regulatory sandboxes out there, I wish was replicated in the United States because you have the UK has, has done this. Um, uh, some of our East Asian counterparts in Hong Kong and Singapore have done this. And quite frankly, it's created a much greater give and take between the sector innovating these solutions and regulators and policymakers that want to make sure that there are certain guardrails around those innovations. I think that's right. Where I think the Gulf broadly and the kingdom is very much sort of at the forefront is that they are heavily investing in unique applications to create uh, not only interoperability with our sort of physical world with the digital world, but we are engaging so much more purely in digital content. I'll give you an example, right? Um, and, and this is something uh, close to the heart of, uh, of the kingdom and many of the investment funds and others, right? International sports organizations, right? Um, huge, huge area of interest for the kingdom and others and heavily investing in whether it's sports leagues or teams and the like. Those teams have affiliate um, kind of, uh, how would you say, uh, loyalty programs. And those loyalty programs are providing benefits from social media applications and text-based programs to uh, application to purchase and sell goods in a retail environment. Imagine being able to be hooked to a financial services product through that affiliation of your sports team. That's happening, right? Super apps are, are, are coming to market mm -hmm that were previously just a uh, messaging app that then turns into a retail crowdfunding app that turns uh, that allows you to then go into um, superstores like the Amazon economy and, 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 and marketplaces to buy and sell products. 
these things are all happening digitally and natively on the web through your applications that you get on your smartphone. And now financial services are bolt-ons. So global corporates and enterprises that are themselves ecosystems, right? And those corporates and enterprises and sports affiliations, they span borders. And that's the really important piece here is that you can have a fan of a of a, a sports club in the Premier League sitting in Topeka, Kansas. And through that affiliation and the uh, applications that they get through that engagement can also now engage in financial services. That's pretty exciting. And if you think about the reach that that has from a financial inclusive perspective, very exciting. What do we need to do? We need to have the same guardrails to ensure that those systems are not exploited by bad guys. I want to be able to be in the same fan club as Richard and Lucian and, and others. And I want to know that when I transact with you all, you are who you say you are, that the wallet that I'm transacting with is yours, that the value that I'm transferring, you know, is an equal debit on this side and a credit on your side, and that none of us are, fraud, are, are de being defrauded by some intermediary. That's what we care about. Those are the same guardrails that are around financial services today in the traditional environment that are now being applied in that environment. So hats off to the kingdom and, and others in the region because they're heavily investing. They recognize the digitization of our economy. They, they recognize the digitization of our lives. And financial services is just one part. And when I look at financial inclusion, we look at financial inclusion not simply by saying, how do I get the world's poor, the unbanked, the underbanked, of which there's a massive population, but how do I get those that are poorly banked, exploitedly banked, right? How do you get them into equitable, secure financial services? And now you can do so in completely digitally native way. That's exciting, but we got to make sure that we also have the appropriate guardrails that they're not exploited. Well, if, if you want to uh, hook up with uh, Lucian and me on, on a football club, we'll have to get him connected with the Alfaya Orange up in Mujma, which is about two and a half hours north of Riyadh, which is which has been our team. Um, you might increase the total fan base by like 10%. If yeah, you mostly because <laughs> we, we, we like the plucky underdog. That's our, you know, that's I, our, we can support underdogs all day. I mean, yeah. So I, I, we, we, this has been insanely interesting every time we talk uh and we, we 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 can't go too much longer but i know you have worked inclusively worked with the the central bank of england on digital currency and and you know it has so digital currency you know especially central bank based digital currencies and certainly with remittances but so many things yeah. um you know what do you see there in terms of the gulf is saudi arabia and the folks who are leading this you know uae bahrain saudi arabia um, is that something we'll see in the future? Absolutely. There are over 100 countries uh, that are in some way, shape, or form experimenting, testing, or issuing their own central bank digital currency. And um, digital currencies are here to stay. Um, digital forms of value or tokenized forms of value, some built on blockchain, some not, um, are here to stay, and they continue to evolve. The fact that you have that many and growing uh, jurisdictions um, working on projects to issue their own form of digital currency is exciting and it showcases the legitimacy of it. Now, there's plenty of questions as, you know, are these technologies or these capabilities, um, you know, hammers in search of a nail, right? What, what, what can we do? What can't we do today with, with the existing tokenized value? You know, when you swipe a Visa card or, or, uh, or do a peer-to-peer -peer payment that you, you would otherwise uh, do with a central bank digital currency. Now imagine 
during COVID and you had stimulus checks to small businesses or, or, or checks to individual households, um, you know, uh, during the COVID time, the amount of fraud, leakage and waste for paper based payments or uh, uh, hard check payments or stored value cards, especially to organizations and individuals that didn't have accounts was extremely high. Imagine if everyone had a wallet into which instantaneously, I know Lucian, Lucian's wallet, Richard's wallet, and I can instantaneously deliver from the government to your wallet that form of value. And I know exactly where it goes. Fraud, leakage, and waste would go certainly to near zero. Imagine if we had that system in place, but we didn't. And more and more organizations, more and more, um, more, more and more organizations, us included, are looking at supporting those kinds of important innovations, whether they be jurisdiction-based, a la CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, or private sector-based uses of digital assets, be they payment stable coins like USDC, right, which is the dollar-backed US, uh, US dollar-backed stable coin. Um, I mean, greater than fifty percent of dollar of 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 currency-backed stable coins are actually dollar-backed. Which tells you, you know, the power of the dollar, um, but Euro-backed other other nations as well. And the other thing that I will say is that in an increasingly tokenized economy, I think we're also seeing very interestingly that governments are equally financial market participants as they are regulators. Right? I can now create a form of tokenized value and and send it and 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 leverage it with the ecosystem, whether it's a crowdfunding or marketplace, right? Governments, I mean, are obviously scared of these things when they say, what does that do to macroeconomic conditions? What does that do to inflation? And those are absolutely sound and right policy questions to ask. What, what, does, that have, what does that do to monetary policy broadly, right? These are absolutely right questions to have. What I think is exciting is the ability to say, how do I move to a digitally native world where the financial system is always on. Right now, so many organizations or individuals, take a contractor, and this is this is not just millions, this is a billions of persons challenge. I'm a contractor, I get paid a hard check, I don't have an account, I gotta go to someplace that'll cash it, and it takes three days to access my own money. And if I have an electric bill that I gotta pay by Friday that gets shut off, how do I access my money? I end up going to a check casher. I end up paying 30% of that ca that check to get a hard, hard check to go pay my utility bill. But if I get deposited digitally, real time, my paycheck in my account, and it instantaneously settles, and it doesn't cost me a dime to access my own money, changes the world for billions of people. And this is the kind of thing we're talking about. Financial market infrastructure is changing such that you can have an always-on financial system. That's exciting. And if I can have an always-on and always accessible financial system globally, now we can do financial inclusion at scale, as long as we have the ability to protect individuals, their private information in a native web-based environment. And that's where it requires governments and the private sector to inherently work together. And some countries are doing that better than most. I would argue that several in the Middle East and the Gulf broadly are just doing it better than we are in the US. And they are engaging in regulatory sandboxes, innovation hubs, and the like, which is very exciting. And it's bringing a lot of global companies there because of the uh, invitation to innovate. Yeah, on that point, I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about it. I mean, 
you know, with the with FTC and there was, a, it, you know, definitely a slowdown in broader venture capital in the U.S. in general. Are you seeing that in the financial services and fintech in the U.S. specifically? And, you know, is that putting us at a disadvantage when it when compared to other places like Saudi Arabia that is, you know, starting to see VCs invest in fintech? And you just saw your first fintech unicorn this week in Tabby come out of uh, Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, is that is that something that's happening? Is that an accurate depiction? It's very accurate. And I get concerned, to be completely honest. And I, I grow concerned. One, I am a patriot, I believe, in, in the U.S. economy and what it stands for. And the what it has historically stood for is open investment, that the dollar is accessible anywhere that its highest valued use could be, be addressed, that innovation and entrepreneurship was one that was prized in the United States, not quashed or, or, or discouraged. And what we're seeing in this space, especially in the digital asset um, uh, ecosystem in the sector, is the opposite of that. With a lack of regulatory clarity, a lack of, of um, innovation on the regulatory side, but also uh, the financial services side is impactful because many companies are being forced to leave. Many companies, and uh, Richard, you rightly pointed out, we've moved to a much more enforcement-centric financial regulatory system. Well, if I'm going to have the sword of regulatory Damocles hanging over my head as I innovate new products and services, I'll just take it else, elsewhere. I'll take it to a jurisdiction that I'm not only invited, but I have regulatory support mm -hmm. to then innovate and drive products there. What I, what I am concerned about is three important um, data points that are moving in the opposite direction. I raised one before. Folks talk about, oh, dollar primacy and hegemony will be there forever. Not true. Alternatives are engaging in the marketplace today. Some of those are jurisdiction-based alternatives like the Chinese UN and they, the One Belt, One Road initiative. You can see the massive amounts, billions of dollars of investment in infrastructure and the like in places like LATAM and Africa. Well, now you create ecosystems whereby you can put a digital form of the UN in those ecosystems and you've effectively created an alternative financial services environment. That's happening. That's not a myth. That is happening today. And so alternatives to the dollar are emerging. And if we really want to keep the U.S. dollar to represent open investment, entrepreneurship, innovation, then we have to find ways to technologically export the dollar. And we have not yet done that in a meaningful way. Digital apps, assets, and payment stable coins represent a potential in doing that. So that's the second piece, which is if you look at the pace of innovation in the financial technology sector today and the number of developers, coders, which is the future of that marketplace, right? The vast majority of that growth is outside the United States, not inside the United States. The majority of my technology and developer crew is not in the United States because I get cheaper, more engaged talent overseas than I do in the United States. I do. And where am I going to take those services in an increasingly global world? We're a virtual company, you know, headquartered out of the Northeast with folks around the United States and in Europe. And we have uh, uh, customers and partners uh, in the U.S. and non-U.S. So you can operate a virtual company, but it's easier, faster, cheaper for me to engage technology uh, and data scientists and computer scientists and coders in Eastern Europe. It's going to cost me a third what it would cost me for the same equivalent um, uh, value and, and talent in the United States. So talent is the second piece I would look at is global talent is, is outside the United States and growing. And those alternatives are growing. And the U.S. really needs to be thinking about that. So you have dollar primacy, you have talent, 
And then you have the pace of innovation. So in the same way that we look at geoeconomic and geopolitical dominance, we now have to look at that, translating that to geotechnological dominance. How do we now enable technology um, from a U.S. values values perspective, open democracy, transparency, security? How do we embed those values in what is increasingly an open web native context? So technology prowess is now the new world order. And it's no longer just going to be geoeconomic dollar primacy and geopolitical political primacy. It's going to require that we also enable those same values in a technology native environment. And that's where I think we need to go. So those are the three trends I look at that I get concerned about as I, as I think about dollars, uh, U.S. system, U.S. financial markets, and the power of, of entrepreneurship and, and innovation that we've always uh, always touted. Amit Sharma, founder at Finclusive Capital. You know, Richard, the incre- 113 episodes in, this is this was a master class in this space and just absolutely enjoyable. And what's great is we get to share it with our listeners and viewers as well. But Amit, thank you so much. <laughs> this was uh, ab- absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Well, I'm very happy to do it. I'm big fans of you all. I'm certainly a massive fan of Richard. Anything we can do to advance it. If there's anything that we can follow up with, please let us know. And, and just thank you for the opportunity. Amit, um, wonderful. Thanks so much. As always, I feel humbled. I mean, that last turn of phrase, technology prowesses is now the new world order. That's great stuff. Thank you so much.